Good morning. It is really, really nice to be back here with you. Before we get into the passage, I wanted to... to uh, did, did it seem like this to anybody else? Friday kind of went by without with a whole lot of noise going on in the world, and we, we didn't put a whole lot of emphasis on Veterans Day. To me, I just kind of noticed that in the news. And so if we have any veterans here, can you stand up for us? Anyone? Thank you. And, and, and at home, too, thank you. I was born into a Navy family. My dad was a Naval officer. My mom was an officer's wife. And I witnessed some of the sacrifices that they made to be part of that community of service. And I know there were many that I did not see. So thank you to you and your families. Okay, with that, let me say a quick prayer, and then we'll get into this passage. Dear Heavenly Father, we are yours. Let us never forget the honor that that is, the honor to serve you, our King. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, Ephesians 2, 11 to 21. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Let me take you for a second to a village in Nepal. I'm in the middle of my PhD research data collection. Uh, we've been working there for a few years by this point. We've got some friendships, but you know, we're, I'm still trying to kind of get plugged in, uh, particularly to the, to the leadership of the community. And one of the things I'm facing is, is there's a lot of divisions in this community. There, it's a caste-based system, so by birth, you're born into your job. You're born into whose house you can go into and whose house you can't. It's a community of division. Okay, now, picture this. I'm researching a ritual, a pre-Buddhist ritual. There, it's a Tibetan Buddhist community, but this ritual goes before that. And it's considered by the community their most important. 
my senses are being assaulted, all of them. And I'm standing next to uh, a younger missionary from a different uh, denomination, for a different agency, a denominational agency. And I was, he was new to this whole thing, and, and um, I could kind of sense his shock going on. There's horns, deep horns, this going constantly. They're drums. There's chanting. There's wailing. Incense is making my eyes water. It's so strong. Every scent is, is, is uh, being assaulted. And they're burning clay effigies that used to be, this is replacing a human sacrifice ritual. And they're burning clay, butter and clay effigies instead. And the young missionary next to me, over all of this, leans in my ear and shouts, they're going to hell for this. What he didn't see was what I saw. Everyone was there. Everyone was part of it. There were no divisions. Because this ritual was protecting their community. This ritual was about destroying the evil spirits that, that they believe destroy their community. I think they might be right. <laughs> and I think the missionary might be wrong. Because he doesn't get to play God, does he? But him, in that moment, and we all do it. Totally forgive the guy. I believe he's matured a lot in his faith, too, by the way. But we all do this. We all play God. Go all the way back. We've done it since Adam and Eve. That was original sin. That was it. You shall not eat of the tree of what? The knowledge of good and evil. God's telling them, don't play God. That part is for me. I'm the judge. You follow me. We're going to dig into this a little bit more and why that's the core of division, is playing God. So, we have Ephesians here. Let's pull it back now, but now let's go, let's go over to, to Ephesus. And Paul's writing a, a, this letter. He's in Rome. He's under house arrest for preaching the gospel. The Romans didn't like that. The Jews didn't like that. Um, so he's, he's kind of, he's experienced some persecution by this point. And he's writing a series of letters to churches around, um, well, a lot of Greece and Turkey these days. Um, Ephesus is one of the only ones where he doesn't have to start off with a, you guys are messing this up. Colossians. <laughs> if you want to hear Paul's response to a church that's really struggling, read Colossians. Ephesus is not one of these churches. In fact, he, 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 uh, he thanks them. He says uh, in, verse, in chapter 1, he says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. This is a church that's, that's doing all right. It's a new church. New, commu- new Christian community, I should say. So what we get in Ephesians is something kind of cool. We get to see what Paul says when he says what he wants to say, not what he has to say. We get to see some more of Paul's heart of saying, all right, you're a new church. You're doing good. You're, you're showing love for all. You've got a pretty good reputation right now. Here's the, here are all the things I want you to know to continue to grow in your faith, to continue to grow as a church. He spends a lot of time on that kind of theme. Here's what it takes to become more mature as followers of Christ in a community of followers of Christ. That's what we see in Ephesians. So it's kind of a cool book for that reason. 
And he focuses on this issue of division early. Because this was an issue that was a problem for the church in general across this whole area. This new church that's going through, that's starting to come out of some of the persecution. They're about to go into a whole bunch more that they didn't see coming. But they're starting to be established. And immediately we see divisions. And the first big one is the first followers of Christ were Jewish. And they held on to that. This was not for the Gentiles. In many churches, salvation might be for the Gentiles, but not the church. Certainly not leadership in the church. It was a, it's actually a fairly clear example of racism in the Bible. Um, now, the Jews justified this. They were being persecuted. Uh, God came to the Jews first. They had lots of good arguments. None of them acknowledged what Christ did, though. Even the followers of Christ. So Paul comes into the scene, and he, he throws a wrench into the works. And he writes this letter basically dealing with an issue, an issue of identity. And it's to, it's to Ephesus, but it, he actually opens this letter in a different way than many of the other ones he does. He doesn't specifically greet the church in Ephesus, and I think he does it for a reason. This was meant for all of them. It was sent to Ephesus, but I, th I believe, and some other scholars believe, this was kind of more of a general letter to be shared more openly. And he's dealing with a broad issue of identity. The way I want to look at this, so we just talked a little bit about context. This is kind of how I try to approach anytime we do a, a translation of a passage, anytime I preach, anytime I teach on a passage. You want, I go, well, you want to walk through a process. You don't want to just be, like, blogging. <laughs> you don't want to... You don't want to just like start throwing ideas out there, right? So context, we've got a little bit of that. What's the background? A little bit about the Church of Ephesus, a little bit about Paul. Think of who Paul is, by the way. Remember what he did when he was Saul. Talk about someone who understands division. Talk about someone who understands hostility and justifying it. And then he was persecuted. Talk about someone who experienced hostility because of what he believed. This is background information to this passage, and it's important. So that we got the context. The next, the, next way, the next step in the process is what's the issue? This is what I teach students when they're doing research. All right, what's your background? All right, what's your question based on what you know of that background? What's the issue you want to address? So we're going to talk a little bit about the issue. I believe it's identity here. Then we're going to analyze what that means a little bit. Not academically. We're just going to think through what is, what is he talking about here? And then we're going to say, okay, what do we do with this? That's about it. That's the process. So we've got our context. Our issue is identity. In this passage, it's Jew and Gentile. It's a racial issue, very clearly. And, and that's why he keeps talking about, you know, you were foreigners. Um, you're not anymore. He's, he's speaking to, specifically to the Gentiles in the church, and not just the church in Ephesus. The, we, we deal with a lot of identities in our world. And a lot of them are the source of hostility in the world. It could be race. It often is. But that's often a symptom of the real problem. It could be economics. It often is. It's a symptom of the real problem. It could be your sports team. <laughs> All right. I've seen some hostility over that. We, we will find anything and say, no, no, no. You're a them. You're one of those. You're not us. There's an interesting cultural universal. 
it's um, cultural universal in anthropology is something that it was kind of an old approach to researching like oh, let's map out all of the things that all cultures share together and we never really found anything <laughs> except us versus them we all as soon as there's an us we start figuring out who them is then we figure out how we need to fear them and then we justify a versus approach this is why Christ is so countercultural, because culture tells us there's us and there's them and we need to defend us. And Christ says there's us and there's them and I died for them too. It's countercultural. It's hard. It hurts even. But Christ provided the new identity, and this is what this is what. Um, Paul really tries to emphasize here. This new identity is something Christ created, not us. It's not based on race. It's not based on economics. It's not based on education. It's not based on who your parents were. You see, we have this thing called, we have ethnic identity. That's, that's usually what we're talking about when we, when we discuss racism and bigotry in that. It's, it's, uh, you could call it the color of your skin, right? Um, we also have cultural identity. Cultural identity has to do with how we relate to each other. You know what culture is? It's, <laughs> I'm going I'm to offend every anthropologist who's ever defined culture. They all start off with, it's a system of, and then they come up with long paragraphs. Culture is just what happens when people are in proximity to each other. We develop systems of relating to each other, but we're, we're just relating. You know why? Because we're made in the image of God. What is God? God is love. We're made to relate, so we do. But we also come from a heritage of playing God. So we sin when we relate. The most damaging form of relationship is one of hostility. Cultural identity, I believe, is defined by our commitments. Our commitments to each other. But there's some other commitments that come into play. And I was asked by a um, Palestinian Christian once to kind of break down my, my definition of relational, definition of culture in light of Israel and Palestine. And he said, you say it's, it's built on commitments, but what about this, what about Palestinian culture? What about Israeli culture? Um, what is the commitment there? And I said, well, the, the, the healthy commitment is to protect my community. The unhealthy side of the same coin is the commitment to destroy the other. And as long as you have, as long as you treat it like two sides of the same coin, you never find the balance. You never find, you never see that Christ died for them too. You never translate that commitment to each other to them. This is what was happening between Jews and Gentiles. This was a history of hostility. This is why the Good Samaritan story is so powerful, because it breaks this model of Jew versus Gentile. This is why Paul was so offensive to the Jewish Christian leaders for quite a long time. This is why Paul and Barnabas broke up. They were, they were a little bit of a dynamic duo in, in, in evangelism, and they broke up over the issue of the role of the Gentiles in the church. This is what's going on in the church here. Hostility. 
Forgetting that John 4, 7 through 9 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Unless we're playing him. Then we defend. And we justify our hostility with defense. But look what they did to me. Look what they're doing to us. We do it a lot. Everybody. This isn't, this isn't you know, I'm not going to speak to any side here. This is a human problem. If you want universals, us versus them. Think of the witness it can be. Think of the witness Paul is saying they should be to break down that barrier because Christ did it. Christ broke down the barrier of hostility. He put to death their hostility. It, you can't read it any more clearly <laughs> He put to death their hostility with his death. That's how much he loves them, whoever them is. We try so hard to forget that. And we don't even realize we're trying. We were were created in the image of God who is love. We were not created God. Right? Hardest lesson for us to learn because it goes all the way back to original sin. That's what original sin is. That is such an important facet to understand the entirety of the Bible. All the themes in the Bible come down to that. We tried to play God, and Christ died because of it. And he reminds us, he, he tears that he gives us our identity back as his. That's so freeing. And this is what, what Paul keeps talking about over and over and over throughout. He, he does it in Romans a ton. Um, We are his. We are not him. When we play him, we turn hostile because it's against our very nature and we feed our sin nature, the play God nature, right? So, we talked about identity. (laughs) We talked about the hostility that trying to own the identity of God in our lives does to us, to others. When you look at oppression... You can always find someone playing God. When you look at responses to oppression, you can almost always find someone playing God throughout history. And the responses are always hostile. Even when it comes to silly things like sports, we get into this. I mean, I I, I remember as a kid in San Francisco, I went to a 49ers game with some of my friends, and and the the dad was like rushing us out because it was a Raiders game, and he was like, things happen in the parking lot, we gotta go. Because it was a close game, and he was just like, let's, don't talk to anybody, just, let's just roll out. How silly is this? And yet we do it in the church, don't we? These days, we've been given ample opportunity to us versus them, our lives. No matter what side of anything you're on, no matter if you're a moderate. I mean, just, there's always this us and them, and it, and it filters into everything because we play God with how we interact with each other. So let's, let's move into this. What do we do with this stuff? I have an example of, from, from the world of missions. The most hostile environment I have ever been in is a missions conference. <laughs> My friend's response to what he was seeing of a them gives a, a clue as to why. Uh, I was on a board, a mission a board of, a, of, our, of our branch, and we had to confront um, 
another agency that we were financially supporting, and the director was brought in. It was, there were some financial problems going on, and we questioned him. And I was the one tasked with questioning the missiology side of it. So I was saying, all right, we have, we have a witness problem here. There's, there's, your hypocrisy is showing. <laughs> and that's kind of how I said it. And he was getting redder in the face. Finally, he just, I gave him a chance to respond. And he said, I, he said, I only have one response. I was called by God to this job. If you question me, you question God. Missionaries are very passionate people, by the way. <laughs> um, they often have to sacrifice a lot. Uh, being away from family, being in other cultures, the stress is high. I can forgive the guy for this. Uh, later, he did, he did um, see the problem. But uh, how often do we do that in our own hearts? You question me, you question God. The most hostile environment I've been in is a missions conference. The, the number one reason missionaries do only one term on the field and don't go back for a second term after their furlough at home is other missionaries by like 70%. Not the people they work with. Not the cultural differences. Not war. Not, those are reasons, but that's like 30%. 70% is the hostility of other missionaries. I, hear, I see it with pastors. I see it with church boards. <laughs> right? I mean, we've all experienced this. Let's just, let's just be honest about it. Because there's actually an answer. Not so much an answer of the mechanics of how to fix it, but the foundation of who we are. Our roots. I love this imagery. We all share the same roots. What are those roots? If it is we are made in his image and he is love, we are restored to our identity through the death of Christ, and we follow that Christ then we treat others like they have the same gift. This does not mean, and here, here I'm going to question our, some of our cultural models. This doesn't mean play nice, necessarily. God also made us passionate. God shows that he was passionate. Jesus in the temple, when he sees that people are profiting off of, off of God for their own benefit, he, what does he do? He starts throwing tables. He's passionate. All right, we can be passionate. Can you be passionate with the hostility? Now we've got something to talk through. We're not called to agree on everything. Sometimes there's some really good reasons that we disagree. I think God made us that way so that we have to try to work it out. But we can't if we're playing God. We can if we realize that we, are, we have an identity that supersedes all of those other identities. We still have those. There's, after Paul writes all this and the church is like, yeah, great, there's still Jew and Gentile. There is still today. He didn't just delete. He didn't just delete the differences. He didn't just delete identities. He reminded us of a true identity that supersedes all of them. We can still be Republican. We can still be Democrat. We can still be black. We can still be white. We can still be mixed. All of those identities, they can still be important to us. If we let go of the hostility, we're his. If we, let go of, if we don't let go of the hostility, we're pretending to be him. Does that make sense? It's hard. It's natural. It's sin nature natural for us to do this. This is why we need to forgive each other too. When we mess it up, we're going to mess it up. This, this book is, is 
full of people messing it up. And God says, I, my grace is, is sufficient for you too. More importantly for us, as we think of what to do, his grace is sufficient for them. That's, that's the difference between, in, in, in studying at Fuller, the difference between studying like um, discipleship and models of discipleship. It, it's kind of looking at like, okay, what, do, what should we believe? What should we teach? How should we grow? And then that's one discipline. And then the discipline of missiology, which is what I studied. That question is, how do they experience us? And is it Christ? If you study missiology and you apply it to the church, you're no longer allowed to, to say, but look what they're doing to us. You have to ask, what am I doing to them? Am I condemning them to hell? Because I see something so different, I can't understand it. And I don't see what God's already doing in this community and wants to use me to, to be a catalyst for people to see why they care about each other so much. Paul gives a little bit of an example of what we do with this whole, but what are they doing to me? In Romans, he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. That's a, big, that's a, that's a real sticking point for Tibetan communities. That's a hard one. Mature Christians know how to navigate that. And, and I've learned a lot from Tibetan mature Christians. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. That's a hard one. <laughs> I think it's talking about hostility. It's not talking about, look, you have to say they're right. No. Set aside the hostility. If it is possible, this is an interesting one. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, he's qualifying Double qualifying. If you can, as far as you're able, live at peace with everyone. He qualified it, though, didn't he? Look, sometimes it's not possible. But you can still let go of the hostility in your heart. You may have to defend. I think of abusive relationships. It's not saying, hey, just suck it up. That's not what he's saying here. As far as you have control of your life, live at peace with Everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Not your wrath. God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, says the Lord. We must look at our actions. We must look at our hearts. We must look at our roots. Are our roots in identities we try to create for ourselves? Or are they in the identity of being created by the God of love, redeemed by his Son, and guided by his Spirit. Do they experience Christ, whoever they is? Or do they experience judgment? Not God's judgment, my judgment. <laughs> we like to hold on to that, don't we? There are many us groups. And there are many them groups in our lives throughout all of history. It's the story of world history. It's us versus them. Christ provided the radical solution. In one act, 
He died for all. Not just he, God he. (laughs) Not just a guy. The one who could represent every one of us, including these people performing a ritual that is so shocking to me, I can't quite understand it. And yet there's something of God in it, and I was able to have conversations about that. Let me just be clear. I'm not saying, okay, I don't have to worry about that. That's, that's, that's to God, too. No. They're believing some lies, and they're desperate, and they're fearing. But there's still something of who they are created to be in that ritual. And that's, that became the focus of my research among all the rituals. What's God doing in this community? What do I see? What can I leverage to be a catalyst for them to see uh, why they do it this way? And in what ways they shouldn't. Christ's death and resurrection took away our false image of being gods, providing for us a way to negotiate our world and our relationships with passion, but not hostility. I love you guys. I also know we're a hurting community, aren't we? Let's just acknowledge that. Set aside the hostility and keep the passion. Whatever it is God's passionate, God has built a passion for you and within you. This is not about you. That's this message of, to the Ephesians. This is about what God did for them. Paul does a lot of what God did for me stuff, but his letters to the churches focus heavily on this is what God did for them. He created them. He loves them. He died for them. Would you? Or do they have to agree with you first? We say I love you. What do we mean? In conclusion. (laughs) It's a hard one when you look at it culturally. Anthropologists won't touch it. Cognitivists try to say, oh, it's it's neurons and, and, and makes you feel good. Can't explain sacrificial love, by the way. It's like all, maybe if it's a child, parent-child thing, but we can't, they can't really describe very well at all the neurological benefit of someone in the military going on a mission that they know they won't come back from. They're going to die for people they don't know. Because we were made by the God of love. Who expressed his love most through what? Through giving of himself. When I say I love you, I hope to mean not I love what you do for me. I hope to mean not I love that you agree with me. I hope I don't mean I love that you caved to me. That's me playing God. No. To say I love you, I hope it means I choose you over me. That's exactly what Christ did. Are we his followers? That missionary, he now teaches in India. He's doing a great job. I've read some of his, <laughs> some of his uh, lectures. I, I'm, I'm impressed. He got it. 
He figured it out. He included some anthropology in there. He asked me a few questions. He got it. Do we get it? What do we need to do to be a better witness to the wider world of how we interact together in the church? That's what we do. We were never, this is my final, go with this one. Go with this thought. Nowhere in the Bible are we called to defend the church. We were promised, the church was actually promised persecution. We were not promised ease. We were not promised comfort. We were not promised wealth. Every time the Bible says, you are blessed, you know what we're blessed with? Our identity in him. We are blessed with a restored identity that we are not God, we are his. That is so much more valuable to know. So much more valuable than ease. So much more valuable than comfort. So much more valuable. Don't worry about defending the church. That's God's job. We are called to be the church wherever we are. His church who loves each other. Who loves God, therefore we love each other, therefore we love all of the thems that would come into our lives. Thank you. Uh, let me pray, and uh, I think the worship team is going to come up. And... Dear Heavenly Father, once again, I reiterate, it is an honor to be yours. Teach us. Guide us. Holy Spirit, may we be sensitive to your guiding. When that hostility rises in our heart and in our minds and we develop strategies to defend ourselves, remind us that you've already done that and that you're defending them too, even from us. Thank you for providing the model of what true sacrifice is and the model of what true love is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand and join us as we sing our last song today, Your Grace is Enough.